Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. This is our third week in this chapter. The first week we spent looking at the introduction, the whole motivation for why Jesus is sharing these parables. And last week we looked in depth at the beginning of this parable of the prodigal son, of the two brothers. Last week we looked at the brothers, the the younger brother's shameful request. We saw his incredibly disrespectful and dishonoring request. You remember he asks his father for the share of the estate, and that's more than just the inheritance. That is uh, everything that his father owned divided between him and his brother. We saw the father's surprising response to such demand. This demand was, in essence, the brother saying, I wish you were dead. I hate you. You're no good to me other than what you offer me. What you have to give to me is all I care about. I don't want you. I wish you were dead. You're just a barrier to my satisfaction. And the father, in his amazing grace, says, okay, you can have it, gives it to him. And we see that it didn't take very long for the younger brother's sin to just be exposed and wickedness to come to the surface all the more. The, the, the money is used to go down a trail of ruin and devastation. Another country squandering his possessions. A famine hits. The original listeners would have thought that the boy deserved the judgment from God he was receiving. The famine in that land. He was going to die. There was no doubt in this boy's mind he is going to die. And as he's wasting away to nothing, the original listeners would have said, yes, he deserves that. Finally, there's something that's right in this story. Think of what this younger brother wanted. All he wanted was freedom He wound up becoming a slave. All he wanted was riches. He wound up being a beggar. And all he wanted was fame. And he wound up being the lowest of the low. He is the embodiment of Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15. The way of the transgressor is hard. And so here he lies in a pigsty, trying to eat the food that the pigs are eating. But he can't even do that because he won't be able to digest it. Dying with hunger. What's he going to do? How will he react? We already saw the first plan didn't really work out. I'll hire myself out to a servant here in the country. A citizen become a servant didn't work. What will he do now? How will he survive? The original listeners would have been on the edge of their seat, as it were, wondering what's going to happen next. We have the privilege this morning of looking at what happens next. So let's remind ourselves of where we've been As we read this section again, Luke chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into the fields to feed the swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, 
he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up. I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up. And he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Father, these verses, uh, we're standing on holy ground. We are approaching the holy of holies, as it were, and we have no business being here. These verses give us such a clear glimpse into the character of our Savior and your heart for the lost. That God, it, it seems like as we stare at these verses, it seems like we need to look away or we need to be veiled in some way. As Moses was veiled when the people would look at him after he would speak with you. God, these are glorious verses. And so I pray that our familiarity with this text would not lead us to contempt. It would lead us to lean in, all the more press in, all the more to see the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus. And I pray that your spirit would do a mighty work in our midst to show us what grace truly is. To show us the love that you have for sinners. God, we have seen our wickedness. Last week, we looked at the depth of our depravity. We have seen it clearly and we see it every day. I pray that you would show us our depravity even more today. But that above all, as we stare at our sinfulness, we would quickly stare to the Son and see the righteousness that He has offered to us by His death and resurrection. God, be pleased in these moments to call lost sinners home. Be pleased in these moments to paint a picture of repentance for us to follow. And that today would even be the day of salvation for some. God, for those of us who know our standing before you, I pray that this day would be a day to glory in the grace of Jesus Christ and be undone in your presence right now. We cannot leave here unaffected by what we see. So give us soft hearts, moldable, teachable hearts, Spirits that are sober, minds that are sharp, 
and open our hearts now to see our blessed Savior. We pray it in his name. Amen. For our time this morning, we're just going to look at two main points in this outline. Number one, we see the genuine repentance of the Son in verses 17 through the beginning of verse 20. And number two, we see the amazing grace of the Father in the end of verse 20 all the way through verse 24. So the genuine repentance of the Son and the amazing grace of the Father. So let's start in verse 17. We left this boy in the pigsty, in the mud and the filthiness and the mire, and he's trying to get food to eat, but he can't even eat, and no one's giving anything to him to eat. But, verse 17 begins, but, he's going to wake up. When he came to his senses, he said, came to his senses, literally in the Greek, when he came to himself, he was beside himself, and now he came to himself. He came to the, the end of his rope, the end of himself, as far as his own plans, his own devices. He came to his senses. Nothing that he has done up until this point made any sense. Sin is irrational. And in his irrationality, he has been completely foolish. But now he's going to wake up. He's going to see the irrationality of his sin. He's going to turn and wake up. He's going to come to his senses. He's going to realize that he is hopeless in his condition. And he's going to stop making excuses for it. He's finished. He's done with his plans. And for the very first time in his progression of sin, we see this brother determined to walk away from his sin, determined to submit to his father, determined to incur whatever consequences would come because of his sin. He knows he deserves it. He sees he deserves it. And he's finally waking up. The first glimpse of hope that we see in the younger brother here is found in his first few words. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? This is the first time that we ever see this brother thinking well of his father. The first time we saw the brother thinking of his father was, you are simply a barrier to me. Get out of the way. I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. So obviously he didn't like his father at that point. The second time it's it's implied that he probably thought of his father was when all of his money ran out and he realized, I don't know what I'm going to do. Potentially, he thought, I could go back to my dad. I could go back and wallow in my own self-pity and shame. Oh, I squandered everything and maybe he'll take me back. But in that conversation, in his mind, he says, no, I would rather stay in this country, be a slave to some citizen here in a Gentile land than go back to my dad. I hate my dad. I don't want to be with him. So probably two times we see earlier in this section, every time he thinks of his dad, he thinks very poorly of his father. Here's the very first time that we see him thinking highly of his father. He's coming to his senses And he remembers how good his father truly is. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. Uh, Hired men, it's a a word that means a day laborer. Um, This man was actually lower in the economic scale than a slave would have been. Because a slave would live with their master. A slave would have clothing, food, shelter, all of those things provided for them. But a hired man, a hired servant is just a day laborer. They would show up. They would do whatever the work that was needed to be done. They would receive a wage and then they would go. They were beggars. They were homeless. 
They had no place to call their own. So most were not treated very well. None were ever given food or lodging. Here, you do the work that I tell you to do. Here's some coins and get out of here. But not his father's hired men. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? It's not just coin they're getting. They're getting food. He remembers the generosity of his father. And he thinks highly of his father. And he says, I'm dying here with hunger. I'm perishing, some of your translations might say, with hunger. I, if I stay here, I will die. I should go back. This is an accurate assessment of his condition. He sees that he would literally die if he did nothing. And I believe this is the first step in genuine repentance. We're going to see three steps in genuine repentance this morning. The first step is this, accurately assessing your situation or an awakening to your true condition. No more excuses. No more, oh, it's been bad, but I can make it better. You must have an accurate assessment of your situation. You must be awakened to your true condition. Jim Boy says it this way. There must be an awakening to one's true condition. One of the tragedies of sin is that it blinds us to our condition. So we imagine ourselves to be happy when in reality we are miserable. We imagine ourselves to be free when in reality we are enslaved. The most miserable people I know think that they are happy or at least are trying to convince themselves that they are happy. If for a moment they do face their condition, they tell themselves this is only temporary. Sooner or later, something's going to happen to alter it. What has happened is that they have believed the devil's lie. You surely will not die. God told us the wages of sin is death, but they have chosen to believe the devil rather than God. And so cover up what is evident to everybody but themselves. The first step in conversion is a recognition and repudiation of the lie, which is an awakening to reality. You must come to the end of yourself. You must come to your senses and realize, if I live in my sin, if I stay in my sin and I do nothing about it, I will die. This younger brother says, I'm going to die with hunger. Spiritually, we will die by the wrath of God. So we must turn. Repentance, the Greek word metanoia, literally means a change in your thinking. Repentance, we often refer to it as a 180-degree turn. You're turning from something to something else. Very, very true. But that's the back portion of what repentance is. At the very definition of the word, uh, meta is to change. Noia is knowledge or what you know. Repentance is a changing in your thinking. It's a changing in what you know to be true. When you're not saved, you think that you're fine. Your thinking would say, I'm okay in my sin. There's nothing bad at the end of the road here. I I, I can live in this. And, And if some of it gets out of control, I can fix it on my own. But when repentance begins in your mind, your thinking changes. The sin that you once loved, now you hate. Because you realize the sin you once thought would give you everything you wanted. Now you see the sin that you used to love will only condemn you to death. You must have an awakening to your true condition, accurately assessing your true condition. But repentance doesn't stop there. If we just accurately assess, I'm dying here with hunger. If I don't do anything, I'm going to die. We haven't repented. We haven't changed. And that's why, verse 18, the son says, I will get up and I will go to my father. 
I will get up and I will go. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Literally, when he says I've, I've sinned, uh, literally the, the Greek is I've sinned into heaven. All of my sin has gone before the throne. You see it all. You know it all. Probably uh, allusion to Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. Oh God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up even to the heavens. So I know my sin. I know my sin. I know I'm not worthy to be called your son. What I have done has truly excommunicated me from the family. I have no hope here. But he says, I'm going to go. Verse 18, I will get up and go. Repentance number one is an awakening to one's true condition. Repentance number two is an honest confession of sin and a desire for reconciliation. An honest confession of sin and a desire for reconciliation. You need both of those together. Repentance starts with a change in your thinking, but it will lead to other changes. And one of the first changes is you will honestly confess your sin and you will desire to be reconciled to the one that you sinned against. Confession, literally in the Greek, the definition is just to agree with. A confession is saying what God says my sin is, I agree with that. It is sin. It is wrong. And I agree with it. But confession like that is not enough. Because if you simply agree with God, if you simply agree with your condition and say, okay, if I stay here and do nothing, I will perish. And I agree that it's wrong. What I'm doing is wrong. You have not truly changed. And that's where I add in that second point, a desire to be reconciled. I believe that this is the biggest difference between remorse over your sin and repentance from your sin. If I were to ask you, what's the difference between somebody feeling sorry for their sin and somebody repenting from their sin? There's similarities there, yes. But what's the difference? What's the difference if you were to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 between worldly sorrow, people are sad about their sin, and they still go to hell. That's worldly sorrow that leads to death. Or godly sorrow that leads to repentance. What's the difference? If you were to boil it all down, difference between remorse and repentance, I believe it's this. A person who is remorseful over their sin, they're sorry about their sin. They confess it for what it is, and then they say, and I still want nothing to do with the person that I hurt. I'm sorry I hurt you, okay? I'm sorry. I'm done. And you walk away. The heart of somebody who has true repentance will confess their sin and then will run to the person that they offended. They have been um, broken. They have severed a relationship and they desire reconciliation. Just think about Judas. Judas was remorseful for his sin. And if he had truly been repentant, he would have run to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, thrown the money back. Good step. Yay. Yay, Judas. We always just say he's bad and he is. But yay, Judas. Good step. Then run to Jesus. He's not going anywhere. He's hanging on a cross. Run to his feet. Plead forgiveness and you'd be reconciled right then. But Judas says, I'm throwing the money back and I'm getting as far away from Jesus as I can. And for him, that's, I'm just going to kill myself. I'm done. He didn't want to be reconciled with the one that he offended. Peter's the exact opposite. He's incredibly remorseful 
He weeps when he realizes that he betrayed Christ, denied him three times. But you remember when he hears from the women that the tomb has been opened and that Jesus is gone? He bolts out of that upper room. I want to see him. He's not, I thought he was dead. I thought he was gone. I thought my sin was covered. It was wrong, but I never wanted to see him again. He bolts after him. Or David, David's sin of adultery and murder. He says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone, I have sinned. And then he says, cast me not away from your presence. I sinned against you and I want that removed because I want you. I want you. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That was not the Holy Spirit that uh, the indwelling that we think of, that was a theocratic anointing. So we can't lose the Holy Spirit as believers. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want your presence and I have your presence because I've been walking with you. And now my sin has destroyed that and I want your presence back. I want to be with you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. I do not hesitate to assert that this perhaps is the most subtle and delicate test as to whether we have truly repented or where we are, our attitude towards God. Have you noticed it in the Psalms? The one against whom David has sinned is God, and yet the one he desires above all is God. That is the difference between remorse and repentance. The man who has not repented, but who is only experiencing remorse when he realizes that he has done something against God, avoids God. The man who has not been dealt with by the Spirit of God and has not been convinced and convicted tries to get away from God to avoid him at all costs. He does not think, he does not read the Bible, he does not pray, he does everything that he can not to think about those things. But the extraordinary thing about the man who is convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit is that though he knows that he has sinned against God, it is God he wants. He wants to be with God. That's the peculiar paradox of repentance. Wanting the one I have offended. So repentance, number one, is an awakening to your true condition. And then number two, you honestly confess your sin and you desire to be reconciled. But it doesn't end there. Repentance, number three, involves an actual return to the Father. Thinking did not save this boy. Confession did not save this boy. Turning and going to his Father is what will bring him to a place of right standing. You must think differently about your situation and be awakened to your true condition. You must confess your sin. You must see a desire, have a desire in your heart to be reconciled to the Father. And then you must go. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he gets up, verse 20, and he came to his father. If his plan had just been, well, I see my condition. I'm going to die here. And I totally did the wrong thing. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. But he just stayed in the pigsty. He would have died. He needed to get up and he needed to go. This is the ultimate proof that repentance is genuine. Second Corinthians 7, we already talked about it a little bit, but godly sorrow produces a vindication of the wrongdoing. It produces a vindication of your character. You want to make sure that you are doing the exact opposite. You remember Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus uh, is welcomed. Uh, Jesus says, I'm going to go to your house, uh, something that I was never allowed to do at a, as a kid. You remember um, your parents told you, if, if you invite yourself to somebody's house, it's really rude, don't do that. If only I had known and read my Bible, I could have said, Jesus did it. He said, I'm going to your house. 
goes to Zacchaeus' house and he says, you are forgiven in essence because he's talking to him as a sinner, as a tax collector. And he says to him, I want to be with you on a relationship with you. And he says, when Zacchaeus throws the party and they're celebrating, Jesus says, truly I say to you, salvation has come to this house. And after that statement, you see Zacchaeus doing all of these different things, giving to the poor, giving of all that he has. If Zacchaeus had just said, I'm a sinner, I'm doing what's wrong, I'm I'm just, I'm absolutely an evil, wicked person. And I don't want to be with Jesus. I'm just kind of sad that I'm doing what I'm doing. Jesus never would have said, I want to be with you. There would never have been a, a relationship that would have been reconciled where Jesus could have said, Salvation has come to this house. There needs to be a desire for reconciliation and a return and the producing of fruit, a vindication of wrongdoing. Uh, in, in seminary, we talked about what repentance looks like, and we had three big words that make no sense, but they kind of do. Um, you have to have change, a change in your cognitive domain, a change in your affective domain, and a change in your behavioral domain. If you want to be truly repentant, you need to change in all those three. I like simple things, so just do it this way. You need to change in your head, your heart, and your hands. You need to change. True repentance changes something about your head, your heart, and your hands. You have a change in your thinking. Your head changes. Your, your thinking changes. You have a change in your heart. I desire to be with God and be reconciled to him. And you have a change in your behavior. Your hands change. You get up and you go. And that proves your repentance is genuine. He says three things. And he's probably saying these as he's going to his father. He has a formula. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Great statement. Very true. Number two, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Very true. And number three, make me as one of your hired men. I'll work off the debt. I want to be with you. Even if it means I can't be your son, I just want to be close to you. I want you. So he gets up and he goes. It's a beautiful picture of his head, his heart, and his hands changing. It's a beautiful picture of genuine repentance. For the religious leaders who are listening, the notion that anyone like this prodigal could ever find any form of forgiveness or redemption was far beyond their comprehension. There's no way this kid's going to receive anything kind or gracious. Hopefully, in fact, the father learned his lesson the first time when he said, yeah, you can go with my money. So hopefully this time when the prodigal comes back, the father's going to deal with him even more severely. How's the father going to respond? Everything that this son is wanting hinges on the response of the father. This is the tension in this story. He gets up and he's going to his father. What's going to happen? What's his father going to say? What should have happened? In a typical Jewish culture back then, this is what would have happened. The father would hear from his servants that the son has returned and that the son wants an audience with the father. The father would not speak to his son. He would send a servant out and say, tell him to sit at my gate, on my porch, sit outside of my home. He can't come in, probably about a seven-day period, so that the whole town can see him. The shame that the entire town knows that this son is brought upon the father is now going to be owned by the son. This son's just going to wear shame. He's just going to sit there, gross, stinking. Probably people aren't giving him any food. All of the dishonor that he brought upon his father would now be his own. Then a servant would bring a message to the son. 
and say, what is it that you desire? The son would relay the message back to the father. The, probably, the father probably wouldn't speak to the son. He would say, fine, he can be one of my slaves. He can be one of my hired men. Can't live here. I'll give him a day's wage, but he needs to find a home somewhere else. And if that happened, the entire town would agree with that and would not welcome him into their home. Uh, they would say, fine, he's not welcome into his home. He's not welcome into ours. And if this all sounds harsh, which it is, Remember, the son's true punishment biblically should have been being stoned to death. So anything less than death would have been gracious. What's the response going to be? Here we see the amazing grace of the father. He's coming home and the middle of verse 20 says, but while he was still a long way off, instead of what he's thinking is going to happen, while he is still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. While he's still a long way off. Remember the entire point of this parable. If you go back to verse 1, Jesus is with the tax collectors and the sinners are coming to him, near to him to listen. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. The, the receives, that, that word, expectantly desiring, longing for. We did a little word search with that in the book of Luke. And every time he, Luke uses this word, he uses it to mean eager expectation, longing, awaiting, searching for. That's exactly what the father's doing here. While he is a long way off, his father is looking, searching for him. How long has it been? We don't know. You know, it's at least been days, but probably longer than that, months, maybe even years. How long has this father been walking down the steps, out the walkway, opening the gate, down the path, looking for a son? Every day for years, this father's been doing that. Why? Why is he watching? Uh, we have our answer. Number one, because he felt compassion for him. He loved his son. Instead of looking upon him with scorn and shame and saying, how dare he? He's dead to me. He says, I wish he was home. I wish he was here. He loved him. He's eager to forgive him. God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He's making the first move. He seeks the lost sheep. He seeks the lost coin. And even here, he's seeking his lost son. There's a second reason why he's watching the first is because of his compassion. The second is similar to it. The father wants to reach the boy before the boy enters the town. The boy's coming back in this story uh, uh, somewhere in the middle of the day. And we know that because it says while he was still a long way off, his father saw. So we know that the sun's up. He can see a long distance. It's not nighttime. Sun's up. Everybody's out. The town is a, a, a bustling community. Everybody's walking, talking, a huge place of commerce. And if the boy were to come back into that town before the father got to him, the boy would be spit upon. The boy would be maligned, rejected. The boy would receive scorn and shame. Everybody knew what that boy did to his father. And the boy would be mistreated. So the father wants to chase down his son before his son gets to the town because the father wants to protect his son from the shame that he's going to receive. So, because he has love for his son and wants to protect him, 
he runs. The Bible says he had compassion for him and he ran. He ran. This isn't what grown men do in that culture. This isn't what grown men do in the Middle Eastern culture even today. This is what little kids do. This isn't what grown men do. To run in that culture as a man, for all intents and purposes, you, you know what they're wearing. They're wearing these basically man dresses. And so you've got to hike up your dress and you've got to run, uh, pulling up your dress and showing your, your legs that haven't seen the sun in a very long time. And so everybody's blinded by your white legs. You're most undignified back then as it is today, even so much so that in Arabic Bible translations today, the Bible translators are reluctant to translate this word as run because they don't, they don't want to associate God, the Father, who's running with something that's undignified. Kenneth Bailey, an evangelical Bible commentator who lived in the Middle East and made careful studies in language, um, and Bible translation says this, the reluctance on the part of the Arabic versions to let the father run is amazing. For a thousand years, a wide range of such phrases were employed, almost as if there's a conspiracy over this word. You would never have seen the word ran. See, something like he hurried or something like that. He hustled or he moved quickly, but never run. Why? He wanted to avoid the humiliating truth of the text that the father ran. The explanation for all of this is simple. The tradition identified the father with God and running in public is too humiliating to attribute to a person who symbolizes God. Not until a Bible in 1860 does the father appear running. The worksheets of the translators are available to me and even in the great version of the first rendition of the Greek was he hurried, not ran. And only in the second round of that translation process does the word run or ran appear. Why? Uh, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 2, he goes on to say, reads, He who hastens with his feet sins. So the Father represents God. How could he run? How could he hasten with his feet? But he does. He does. Greek is a very specific language. It's my love-hate relationship with Greek. I, I despise it because it's so specific that it's very challenging to study. But I love it because it's so specific that you have no question about what the text is saying. There's actually a couple words in Greek for run, like jog or a saunter. And there's an all-out sprint as fast as you can go. This word for run is an all-out sprint as fast as you can go. Brothers and sisters, have you ever thought when you have sinned, have you ever thought of Jesus? And you can kind of picture him in your mind as you're going back towards him. And you just kind of picture him standing with his arms crossed, waiting for you to crawl back on your hands and knees, to beg forgiveness, and maybe he'll grant it. I've, I've felt that way. And this passage tells me Jesus is chasing me down. Surely goodness and mercy, loving kindness will follow me, will pursue me, will chase me down all the days of my life. Your Savior is not looking at you going, why'd you do this again? We probably have that perspective in our minds because that's what we think about our kids. I told you 17 times today and you did it again. What is wrong with you? Jesus chases us down and says, I love you. And I don't want you to wear shame I don't want you to have scorn. You're mine, and I'm chasing you down. 
That's exactly what he does. He runs. He chases him down. He embraces him. End of verse 20. He embraces him. Uh, dirty, filthy, pig smell mess and all. He wraps his arms around him. Doesn't, hey, clean yourself up. I don't even do this with my kids. We were at a friend's house the other day and my son just fell in the mud and as he was trying to get up, he fell again and fell again and finally he was just brown all over and he started crying, oh, daddy. And I was just like, hang on, let me get a hose and shoot you with the hose and get you all clean before I touch you. And, and even as I go to help him like take his shoes off and he puts his hand on my shoulder, don't touch me, I'm gonna, I don't want to get the mess. Not this father. You can almost see the son kind of, no, don't, don't touch me. Don't. And he just grabs him and he picks him up. He embraces him. He kisses him. The verb tense there in the Greek is repeatedly, just showering him with kisses. What a beautiful picture of Christ who humbled himself to seek and to save the lost. Just showering us with grace. And we're still dirty. We're still disgusting. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. No, come here. A hug and a kiss. Verse 21. The son's speech has been prepared. The formula is set. We've got three things. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Number two, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Number three, make me as one of your hired men. That's the only way I can exist here. How many times on his road back to his father has he said those three things? He has it memorized. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. As he's walking, I'm sure as he's saying those words, he would stop and go, this plan is ridiculous. There's no way he would take me back. I'm so unworthy. Maybe he starts to turn back. No, I'm going to plead with the mercy and the goodness of my father. And he keeps walking. He keeps rehearsing. So here's his moment. He's memorized his script and he begins. Verse 22, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. That's a point number one. Good point. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Point number two. Good point. But before he can say point number three, the father butts in and the son is never allowed to say that third point. What was the third point? Remember, father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. Number one, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Number two, make me as one of your hired men. Number three, I'm going to work to earn back what I let go, what I squandered. I'm going to work for you. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. True I'm not worthy to be called your son. Very true. But the father butts in before he can say, and let me work for you. Let me work. The son is never even able to get that part across because the father has reinstated him as his son before he's even able to offer that. The religious leaders listening If they thought that God's role in redemption, if he had a role in redemption at all, they regarded his grace in redemption only as a merciful supplement to whatever effort the sinner himself could put forth to secure favor. So God will give grace as long as you're doing your best. You've got to show me. You've got to prove it to me, and then I'll give you some love. There was no concept in the religious leaders' minds of a mercy so great that the Father would grant full forgiveness and instant reconciliation before the sinner ever performed a single work. Yet this is biblical, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The prodigal son is a beautiful textbook. This story is a beautiful textbook 
example of someone who is justified by grace through faith apart from any meritorious deeds. There's no working here to earn favor. Even in the son's mind, he's thinking, I'm going to have to work to earn my father's favor. And his father cuts him off and says, you're not even allowed to say those words. I'm giving you access to my family as my son apart from you doing anything. He lavishes excessively his love and his grace. The father butts in verse 22. He says to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Best robe. This would be reserved for the best occasions, kind of like a wedding. So in our culture, it might be similar to like a tuxedo that you buy. But that's such a bad example because there's so much more going on here. He would cover his son with this robe. All of the dirty, filthy rags would be covered. Not one would be seen. The father covers his shame, covers and hides his filthiness. The boy didn't need to wash himself off. Hey, you've got to clean yourself and then you can come to me. He came dirty and the father wrapped him in clean garments, covering him completely. The word atone is just a word cover, to cover your sins. This is a beautiful picture of atonement. I'm going to cover you in my righteousness so that all of your unrighteousness, the filthy rags that you have, are completely Invisible. You can't see them because all you can see is the robe of my righteousness. Put a ring on his hand. This is a signet ring. This is a sign of authority. This would be um, uh, put into wax, hot wax, whenever you were mailing something or if you ever wanted to give a letter to say, this is from the family. What this ring signifies is that you, my son, are now my son. All of the privileges that you lost by leaving, you've gained. Not by working, by your simple repentance, by coming to me. You've gained it all. You are every amount as authoritative as my son was back then as you are now. You are my son. And then he gives him sandals, put sandals on his feet. Only masters in their family wore sandals, so hired servants that this son wanted to be were always barefoot. This is, again, a reinstatement as son. The father's acceptance of his son is immediate and it is complete. And with these three gestures, these three gifts, this son is now brought back in. So much so that now he has, uh, he's the heir of the inheritance again. Like when the father dies, he's going to receive another portion. You get everything back. You have it all. Do you remember what the word prodigal meant? Remember back up in verse 13, the end of verse 13, loose living? Um, Prodigal is excessive spending. It's not rebellious. We attach that in our minds to rebellious. It just means excessive or extravagant. The younger brother's evil and wickedness was very extravagant, was very prodigal. But now we see that it's the father who is even more prodigal than his own son. The father is more excessive and lavishing of his goodness than even his son was of his wickedness. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. By these things he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We become partakers of the divine nature and have been granted precious and magnificent promises by our Father. John 1.16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, grace upon grace, lavished upon us. Isaiah 55.7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We just keep receiving more glory, more glory. John chapter 10 verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He's not just giving us a little bit of grace here, a little bit of grace here. He's lavishing grace upon us in a prodigal sense. William Hendrickson writes, God's gifts are always most generous. He is forever adding gift to gift, favor to favor, blessing to blessing. He gives not only of his riches, as we saw in Ephesians 1, as a billionaire might do when he gives a dollar to charity, But he gives according to his riches, the riches of his grace. He imparts grace upon grace. He delights in loving kindness. When he loves, he loves the world. When he gives, he gives his only begotten son. That son, moreover, not only intercedes for his people, but ever lives to make intercession for them. When Abraham's servant asks Rebecca for a drink, she not only quenches his thirst, but in addition also that of the camels. This is just a faint reflection of what God in Christ is doing constantly. He not only grants Solomon's wish for wisdom, but in addition promises him riches and length of days. He not only accedes to the centurion's request to heal the the latter servant, but in addition he pronounces blessing upon the centurion himself. He not only answers the pleas of Jairus, restoring his life to his daughter, but in addition he sees to it that the child gets something to eat. He, the resurrected Christ, not only fulfills his promises to meet the disciples in Galilee, but in addition meets and blesses them even earlier in Jerusalem. He not only pardons the sinner as the governor might grant pardon, but in addition adopts him and grants him peace, holiness, joy, assurance, freedom of access, and super invincibility. He lavishes grace upon grace and he says, let's party. He brings the fattened calf, which would have been reserved in verse 23, would have been reserved for the wedding of his son. Kill it. Let's eat it now. We need to celebrate. Why? Because something greater than a marriage has happened here. My dead son has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. And they begin to celebrate. There's no way that you can look at these verses and question the love that God has for you. If you are here this morning and you know the love that is being described here, you know the love that God the Father has for you in Jesus Christ, then I pray that these verses would motivate your obedience. You've been loved before you could ever do one deed can't lose that love as we sang he's lavished it on you as the town has come around this son and seen this spectacle 
Now the scorn that they would have had towards the brother has now been given solely to the father. However poorly they thought of that son, now they have just taken all of those bad thoughts and said, this father is ridiculously foolish. However prodigal they thought the son was, how much more so this father. He has taken our sin. He has taken our shame. He has covered it. He has canceled it. He has loved us. If you know that love, then you can celebrate that love anew and afresh today as we celebrate communion together. We're celebrating that substitution. Him taking our shame and covering us in his righteousness. But if you don't know that love, if you don't know that you have been brought back as a son or a daughter, adopted by the Father, if you don't know that love, you're still wandering in the far country, still haven't come to your senses, awaken to your true condition that apart from Jesus, you will die in your sins and you will spend forever in eternity separated from God in hell. Then today is the day to wake up. Why would you refuse your heavenly father who loves you this way? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the love that he has for you. Maybe you question the love. Maybe you doubt his love. What would you have him do to prove his love for you? He's been searching for you every day that you've been lost. He loves you. He's not going to reprimand you. He's going to lavish his grace upon you and call you a son or daughter and bring you home. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to him. Awaken to your true condition. Confess your sin for what it truly is. Desire reconciliation with the God who made you and that you are accountable to. And turn. Run to him. Father, I thank you so much for this amazing account that is so clear in its understanding of uh, the grace that you've given to us. And I pray that we would be blown away by your grace, that those who do not know your grace would turn and run to you, knowing all along you've been chasing them down from the beginning. And God, for those of us who know your love, may this day be a day when we glory and revel in the grace of our God and Savior. We pray it in his name. Amen.